One hot September day, we took a walk down 8th Avenue in Brooklyn Sunset Park neighborhood. It's always a busy street, and especially this Sunday, when residents were out shopping and enjoying the warm day. Fresh fruits, vegetables, and seafood were spilling onto the sidewalks in crates and buckets. Vendors were calling out to passerby, advertising their squids and blue crabs for sale, and their grapes, plums, lychees, and green veggies of every kind. Mothers with two or three kids in tow navigated the bustling streets. Older residents dragged rolling carts behind them, while others set up carts and tables on the sidewalk, offering watch repair services, homemade dumplings, and ladies' undergarments in front of the restaurants, grocery stores, and pharmacies all along 8th Avenue. All along the street, people called out to each other in Fujianese and Cantonese, and signs were written in Chinese characters above shop windows and scrawled onto cardboard. The bustle, the chatter, and activity that we found on 8th Avenue a few weeks ago, it's a far cry from what this street used to look like in the 1970s and 80s. I grew up in the neighborhood. Um, my family moved to Sunset Park in 1974. And, um, and my dad is still there. This is Professor Terry Hum. She's an urban planner and chair of the Department of Urban Studies at Queens College, CUNY. We talked to her about her memories of growing up near 8th Avenue. The neighborhood at that time where, where my dad was on you know, 55th and 8th was still largely Scandinavian, Irish, Italian. And, uh, and I don't think that those neighbors were particularly happy to see Chinese people moving in. Um, 8th Avenue was very sleepy. I think that my parents really liked that quietness, but in terms of how we felt being welcomed into the neighborhood, I don't think that we really felt that welcomed. It was just very quiet um, and, uh, and nothing like what it is now. Absolutely nothing. Terry Hum went on to get her master's and PhD in urban planning at MIT and then UCLA. And she came back to Sunset Park because this neighborhood has an important and unique story to tell about how working class immigrants from all over the world live together and create community. She wrote a book about Sunset Park called Making a Global Immigrant Neighborhood. Uh, Sunset Park, I think at the time that my my family moved there, was... uh, segregated. Um, I mean, I think that the Latinx population was largely concentrated along the industrial waterfront. And then the more upland parts of Sunset Park, that's kind of comprised of these modest, you know, two family row houses were where a lot of the the white homeowners were. Once the Chinese started to kind of move into the more uh, home-owning part of uh, Sunset Park that was, you know, more upland, a lot of the whites left. In the late 1970s, Sunset Park was predominantly Puerto Rican and white. In the 1980s, more Chinese people began to settle in the neighborhood. Only a few thousand clustered around 8th Avenue. By the end of that decade, the number of Chinese residents in Sunset Park had tripled. 
Today, Sunset Park is 48% Asian and 35% Latinx. There's a lot to say about Sunset Park, Brooklyn, and that's why we've got two Building Brooklyn episodes about the neighborhood. Between 1993 and 1994, the Center for Brooklyn History at BPL collaborated with the Museum of Chinese in America to collect oral histories from Sunset Park residents. They interviewed and cataloged 26 stories about the neighborhood and its growth from the 1950s up until the early 1990s in both Cantonese and English. So we're going to start the history of this neighborhood in the middle of the 20th century with a promise to you that our very next episode goes back even further than that. For this episode, though, we're going to focus our story on one street in the neighborhood, 8th Avenue, which many would call Brooklyn's Chinatown. I'm Krissa Corbett-Kavoris. And I'm Adra Aduse. You're listening to Borrowed, a podcast from Brooklyn Public Library. This episode was produced and written in collaboration with the Museum of Chinese in America. Let's start with the construction of the Gowanus Expressway. If you remember from the first episode of our series, Regan Tarbell's uncle was a Mohawk ironworker and he helped build the Gowanus Expressway. Tragically, he died while on that job. Like Regan, some of our listeners may have an emotional connection to this place beyond its historical significance to Sunset Park and the city. There were other casualties of the construction of that highway. It changed the residential boundary of Sunset Park. The Gowanus Expressway replaced an elevated train that used to run along 3rd Avenue. The parkway was widened in the 1960s, which decreased foot traffic in the neighborhood and contributed to the decline of the community. By the 1970s, many apartment buildings were abandoned. Louis Castaldo, whose father owned a pizza parlor on 8th Avenue at the time, recorded his oral history with the library in 1994 and talked about his father's decision to buy the pizzeria in 1969. He had hesitated at that time to purchase the business because there was a bad element of drugs on 8th Avenue, which frightened two previous owners away from the store. So many people in discussing the past seem to only remember the glory and the nice things, but I think it's important with history to remember the truth. And 8th Avenue in 1969, 1970 had its share of problems. Here's how Terry Hum characterizes that time period for Sunset Park. There were a lot of different kind of structural factors that led into the disinvestment and the decline of of certain neighborhoods. So absolutely, immigrants after the 1965 Immigration Act which eliminated racist quotas, right, and and opened up the doors, um, you know, to new immigrants. They they came. Uh, they you know were able to purchase into uh, neighborhoods that I think other folks wouldn't want to buy in, because Sunset Park it was a disinvested area, but it was seen as kind of a declining neighborhood, and part of that had to do with the growing uh, Latinx population. So. That was, you know, definitely problematic, but in terms of 
real estate, I think that, you know, that is very much aligned with some very racist real estate practices. There, there really were very few Latinos in, in Sunset Park as I, as I grew up. Um, the average was um, two families per block. That's Edmundo Quinones. He was born to Puerto Rican parents in Manhattan and moved with them to Sunset Park in the 1950s. He talked about the discrimination he encountered moving into what was then a predominantly white neighborhood. Edmundo went to Puerto Rico for high school and college, and then returned to his old Brooklyn neighborhood in the 1980s, where he stayed to raise a family. He remembers stumbling upon Brooklyn's new Chinatown along 8th Avenue around 1985. And by the time I got up there, I was in total disbelief, because when I, when I walked up, they, it was all Chinese, Chinese restaurants and, and supermarkets. You know, it was, I couldn't believe that an immigrant group would come in to a neighborhood and be doing so well. You know, like a first-rate restaurant, you know? Sunset Park, almost overnight at the end of the 1980s, became an extremely diverse neighborhood, largely thanks to increased migration from Manhattan's Chinatown and increased immigration from China. And in some of the oral histories, you can actually hear the emergence of 8th Avenue as a shorthand for the center of Brooklyn's Chinese community at the time. Here's Fei-Ling Li, a woman from mainland China who moved to New York City in the 1970s. She recorded her interview in Cantonese in 1993. The term 8th Avenue was not generated until the Chinese communities of the 8th Avenue developed to a certain point. Because for Chinese people, the 8th Avenue is easier to pronounce and more direct. When you say Sunset Park, you don't know where it is. When you say Yuan, you don't know where it is. But when you say 8th Avenue, you must be talking about 8th Avenue. Here's 66-year-old Yu Rongju, speaking in Cantonese about his decision to move to Sunset Park, Brooklyn, in 1990. Of course, Manhattan's Chinatown is the most convenient place to live in, but the rent there is high. Have you tried to find a place to live over there? We can't afford to rent there. We have to get enough funding. We can't afford it financially. So why did Brooklyn's Chinatown emerge on 8th Avenue? Well, there's local lore that it's because 8 is a lucky number in Chinese culture, indicating prosperity. High school teacher Tony Giordano mentioned another popular story about 8th Avenue's founding when he recorded his oral history with the library in 1993. Some of our Chinese friends told us that they came here merely because the N train stopped here um, and that they basically just got on in, in Chinatown and got off at every station until they found the neighborhood that they could afford. By the early 1990s, when the library and MOCA began to collect oral histories in Sunset Park, residents were learning how to live next to the neighbors who might not share the same language or cultural heritage. Assumptions and prejudices arose between groups of people, and that comes through in the oral histories. We've excerpted moments in some of the interviews that illustrate that tension. And it's interesting to hear how familiar those sentiments might sound to our ears nearly 30 years later. Here's Edmundo Quinones again. 
There are feelings in the community of envy of the Chinese because in the last five years is when I've become aware of it. The Chinese are the only people buying in the neighborhood, buying houses. The Latinos, even though we're so family oriented, have not, most of us, been able to pool our resources together the way the Chinese have. They're buying the houses, but there are three generations in that house. There's a feeling, gee, these people just, just got here and they're doing pretty well that they're, that they're buying up uh, houses. Coupled with a, um, a reputation in the schools that the Chinese children are so hard working. So when we, we, we go to open school night and you look at the, at the honor roll, the Chinese, the Chinese name. So that exists. Brooklyn Chinese American Association founder and Sunset Park resident Paul Mack, who was at the time of his 1993 interview the only Asian community-born member in Sunset Park, spoke about the damaging stereotype that Edmundo just mentioned, that Chinese Americans and Asian Americans are the, quote, model minority. The Chinese students, uh, for example, in, in the Brooklyn area, actually is having a, a high school dropout rate of over 20%. However, a lot of a lot of people they still consider the Chinese students are the best students of all. You know, by keep thinking that the Chinese are the best workers or the best students, you know, actually we create more pressure, uh, a negative impact. So these are the things that we I think we should in the long run should address. In the mid 1980s, when Brooklyn's Chinatown was just emerging, Yan Chan was in middle school in Sunset Park. When she recorded her interview in 1993, she remembered non-Chinese kids bullying her. At that time, there wasn't so much Chinese. And some kids are very mean. Like when you go out, they look at you differently and they're waiting for you because you're Chinese. Chan described an incident where she went to the grocery store with her sisters and a group of girls pushed in front of them in line as if they weren't there. The interview asked what Chan did about that. Well, we didn't do anything because we feel like they could do that for us. Why did you feel that? I don't know, because I guess there wasn't that much Chinese here, and we feel like it's their place. Of course, now I think differently, and I know better. At that time, you can't do anything. We were young. I mean, I was very young, and also my sisters were very young. Mac Soi Ka, a seamstress and a community organizer, spoke about the anti-Chinese discrimination she encountered in 1987 in Sunset Park. She recorded her interview in Cantonese. The Italians were fighting with us Chinese, and there was an anti-Chinese sentiment. Why did I say there was an anti-Chinese sentiment? They printed 70,000 leaflets and spent $50,000 in labor expenses and asked the school children to hand out leaflets after school. They paid the children $5 an hour for each stack of leaflets until they finished delivering 70,000 leaflets. In what district do you mean? 
Our 8th Avenue, all our subway stations and all our Chinese residences, all the shops, houses, and public places on the 8th and 7th Avenue, and even some letters were sent to Chinese families and work units. The leaflet said, you oriental people, pack up your bundles and go back to your places. So that's a very serious problem. Sunset Park is always changing. The stories we just heard from the oral history collections took place in the 1980s and 90s. Sunset Park today, even just 8th Avenue, is different than what it was at the time of the recordings. Here's Terry Hum again, reflecting on those changes. You know, we were talking even about how the demography of the Chinese immigrant population has changed. It is largely Fujianese now, and so... um, um, my father, you know, who is Toysanese, and so he would understand Cantonese. Um, he oftentimes tells me that he feels like a stranger in his own neighborhood, when in fact all of his neighbors are Chinese, but they speak Fujianese, and he doesn't know how to communicate with them. Um, that, plus the fact that there was so much development going on, he doesn't recognize his neighborhood. This is what he always tells me. Aside from the language change, there's the development that has been going on in Industry City on Sunset Park's waterfront, which used to be called Bush Terminal. Many members of the Chinese community in Sunset Park worked in textile factories there, and working-class Latinx residents found work in factories and docks there too. You know, Industry City uh, was at one point, you know, it anchored uh, Brooklyn's port economy, Um, It provided a lot of, you know, working class jobs for the earlier immigrant groups that were in the community. And, And up until early 2000s, there was still industry that was happening in Industry City. But, you know, the new owners, the new investors, their vision of the future, their vision of, you know, the growth sectors... Um, is more driven by finance, uh, tech, uh, biotech, etc., entertainment. And that rezoning was all about how to grow uh, the innovation hub in Industry City. And the promise was supposed to, is always jobs. But the question is, really, is it really going to provide the kinds of jobs with livable wages for the immigrant working class that still remains and lives in Sunset Park. That's a big question for Sunset Parkers these days. The neighborhood is changing, but who is it changing for? For now, 8th Avenue still stands out to many New Yorkers as Brooklyn's Chinatown. It looks and feels unique when you walk down it. So we wanted to end this episode by bringing our story to the present day, when the visibility of being a Chinatown in America has become a dangerous thing again. It's not a coincidence that there has been a rise in anti-Asian violence in the past two years since the beginning of the pandemic and the racist idea promoted by the former president that COVID-19 is a, quote, Chinese virus. To tell this part of the story, we're going to share excerpts from a new oral history collection started by the Museum of Chinese in America. It's called One World, and the archive is meant to document the experiences of Asian Americans during COVID-19. Brooklyn College student Yu Jenny Wang shared her story with MOCA. 
Jenny was born in Sunset Park and grew up partially in China, where she was raised by her grandmother, and then seven different states across the U.S. as her parents worked at restaurant after restaurant. When she recorded her oral history in 2020, she recollected hearing about coronavirus from family in China before many Americans knew about it. Starting in January, her family told her to start wearing a mask. At that time, school was still in session. So I would wear face masks to school. And I remember all the people looking around me. They were like, why is she wearing a face mask? Like you can hear like mutters underneath their breath. Because at that time, the government said, oh, masks are not mandated. Like, you know, you don't have to wear a mask. And I remember like low-key being judged for it. And I was kind of scared because there were so many attacks against Asians. I lived in Sunset Park. And at that time, um, there were like people coming off the bus screaming racial slurs at Asians like, oh, this is your fault. Um, You know, like this would have happened if you didn't come to America. So I in a way, even though I knew that I had to wear a mask because of my family, my grandparents are really old. So I knew that even though it wasn't mandated, I wanted to wear it. I was I felt scared for myself in a sense because I was scared of retaliation because I did have to take public transportation to school, like the subway and the bus. In March of 2020, when then-President Trump called COVID-19, quote, the Chinese virus, it only got worse here in New York. I feel like the one good thing that came from this, you know, racially targeted acclaim was like the union of Asian Americans, because they were like, hey, this isn't right. And as Asians, we have to stand up for like, you know, like our community. Yin Cheng and Moonlin Tsai were also living in New York City and went through something similar when it came to experiencing extreme racism during the start of the pandemic. They also were a part of the creation of a new community of Chinese Americans, a community based around a love of food. When COVID hit, we were talking about food and what we can do for the community. And then Yin, you want to jump in? Okay, so jumping in this Yin here, um, that's when we were experiencing racism on the near day-to-day here in the Lower East Side, and also making our way through the city um, due to essential work. And people would have um, the audacity and the boldness to say very, very direct, uh, very uh, nasty things to us, uh, directly related to our race, how we present, um, and tying it to COVID-19. And at the same time, experiencing this firsthand we were hearing news, like there was news every single hour, updates. The schools were closing down, there's gonna be no access to food. Um, and a lot of the parents here in the area that we live in, uh, or and also close by, could not afford the extra two meals, the breakfast and lunch that, that the parents usually count on, that their kids can have in school. At the same time, there was news about videos being released Uh, news reports about elderly being violently attacked from here in New York's Chinatown all the way to San Francisco's Chinatown. So all of that really, it just really angered us um, and brought back a a lot of memories about our own grandparents. And it could have easily been one of them who were on the streets and, you know, making their way, walking through Chinatown, minding their own business and suddenly getting violently attacked from COVID-19 related racism to experiencing also food insecurity. Yin and Moonling sprang into action. They called around to see which organizations serving seniors had clients that needed help with food access. 
They worked with restaurants and local farms to donate meals and coordinated with volunteers to make food deliveries to the elderly in Flushing, Manhattan, and Sunset Park's Chinatowns. And importantly, all the food they were delivering was culturally thoughtful. The meals that the government gave out had canned tuna and milk, things that many elderly Asians don't know how to cook or cannot eat, given that so many are lactose intolerant. And it wasn't enough food either. Yin and Moonlin filled their packages with bok choy and kabocha squash, porridge with tofu and fish, and boxes of soy milk purchased from local shops all things that they knew the elders in their community would actually enjoy and eat. You know, you just make meals that you would be proud to serve your grandparents. You would, your grandparents would make for you. You know, it's really important to hear these stories, not only the ongoing need for cultural awareness, but also the triumphs of the Chinese American community in Brooklyn and across the country. It's important to know the story and to listen to the present as well as our history so that we can build communities where we all can thrive. Building Brooklyn is a miniseries from Brooklyn Public Library's Borrowed Podcast. It's produced by Virginia Marshall with help from Fritzi Bodenheimer, Jennifer Prophet, Meryl Friedman, and Robin Lester Kenton. This episode was a collaboration with the Museum of Chinese in America, and it was written by Virginia Marshall. Our music composer is Billy Libby. Borrowed is brought to you by Brooklyn Public Library and is hosted by me and Krissa Corbett-Cavores. You can find a transcript of this episode at our website, bklynlibrary.org slash podcast. Our beta listeners on this episode were Kat Savage and Lucretia Neal. And you can listen to other interviews in the One World COVID-19 Special Collection at the Museum of Chinese in America's website. That's M-O-C-A nyc.org. Their collection seeks to document and share the stories of Chinese Americans and the Chinese diaspora resisting coronavirus-fueled hate with acts of compassion and generosity. Music on this episode came from Blue Dot Sessions and the BBC Sound Effects Library. Oral histories came from New Neighbors, Sunset Park's Chinese community, and interviews were collected between 1993 and 1994 by BPL Center for Brooklyn History and the Museum of Chinese in America. Special thanks to BPL reference archivist Sarah Quick for helping us pull tape for this episode, to Yu Ma, Elaine Huang, and Evian Pan for their translation work, and to Professor Terry Hum and her incredible book about Sunset Park called Making a Global Immigrant Neighborhood. Next time on Borrowed, we'll learn a bit more about the community that came before Sunset Park's Chinatown. Immigrants from Finland came to the neighborhood in the early 20th century and established the country's first nonprofit cooperative apartment buildings. I was born in 1947 in that co-op. And in those days, you could hear Finnish on the street. And there was the Finnish hall, there was the newspaper, and there was a tailor. Uh, it was everything that you could imagine because they gravitated towards that neighborhood because they didn't have to learn English. That's next time on Building Brooklyn.